Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzay, and today's show is brought to you by BetterHelp and Sunday. As part of our Art of Living author interview series, we have an excellent program about Armageddon with returning biblical scholar and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Bart Ehrman. Thank you so much for listening. I will reintroduce Dr. Bart Ehrman to our Not Old Better Show audience in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 705th episode when I spoke to award-winning American television producer, filmmaker, and journalist, Natasha Lance Rogoff, who is author of the new book, Muppets in Moscow. Two weeks ago, as part of our series on Women's History Month, I spoke with Smithsonian Associate Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Sarah Lukinson about the magnificent Barbara Streisand. Excellent subjects for our Not Old Better Show audience, especially during Women's History Month. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. Our guest today and returning audience favorite, Dr. Bart Ehrman, has written or edited over 30 books, including six New York Times bestsellers. Dr. Ehrman's newest book, Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End, is already a New York Times bestseller. Dr. Ehrman will reveal, as a biblical scholar, why our popular understanding of the apocalypse is all wrong and why that matters. Dr. Bart Ehrman says we will find nearly everything the Bible has to say about the end in the book of Revelation. Dr. Ehrman tells us today why the book of Revelation is a mystifying prophecy filled with bizarre symbolism, violent imagery, mangled syntax, confounding contradictions, and very firm ideas about the horrors that await us all. But whether you understand the book as a literal description of what will soon come to pass, or you interpret it as a metaphorical expression of hope, that's definitely where I come down. In any event, all of us will recognize in our conversation with Dr. Ehrman the highlights that come from pop culture, what you think the book of Revelation reveals, and what you think is almost certainly wrong. (laughs) Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast, returning biblical scholar and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Bart Ehrman. Dr. Bart Ehrman, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me again. Welcome. Uh, We're going to talk about your new book, Armageddon. I've got a copy of it here. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. It's been wonderful to read. I always enjoy talking to you, but I, I happen to know that you are a basketball fan. We are smack dab in the middle of March Madness. How's your bracket? How you doing? Are you you enjoying it at this oh, point? Oh, it's awful. <laughs> okay. No. So uh, I don't know if you know, you know, my team, UNC, was I in know. the national championship game last year. And the beginning of this season, it was the number one team in the nation preseason. And they did not make the tournament. <laughs> they, they did not have a good year. Yeah, and so I was rooting for Duke and they lost in the second round. And so it's a, been a weird, I don't know if you're following it. It's been a I weird am. tournament. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm following it a little bit. We, I live just out, I live in the Northern Virginia area, kind of the DC area. Uh-huh. And um, uh-huh. so our teams, our local teams are out of it too. And yeah. uh, Maryland yeah. and Howard were in it. And then on the women's side, I think the women, the Maryland women are still, very much in it but uh-huh. uh but yeah it's been it's been a topsy turvy tournament but uh 
but I know I do know that you're you're a fan, and so my best. And are you looking forward to spring <laughs> training? Yeah. Maybe maybe from March Madness, we have spring training coming up. And I know you're a sports you're a sports guy, so we got that at least. Well, you know, I used to be a big baseball guy, and I you know, but the last few years I just haven't been just because mainly because it's so it's so much time. <laughs> yeah, Mesa, I've I've really become kind of football. Uh, basketball and tennis, though I do do, do a lot of yeah. tennis too. So. Yeah, <laughs> I enjoy tennis to watch it too. Well, good. Well, yeah. and I know you're super busy again. We're going to talk to you today about this wonderful new book entitled Armageddon: What the Bible Really Says About the End. And I got to, I got to tell you, kind of, just a, as soon as I started reading this, I thought back, and many in my audience might be familiar with this, but there's this great New Yorker comic and i'll put it up on the screen in in just a minute but it, it's it's one of my favorites of all time it it, it shows that uh you, you've you got two people kind of on the street there one that's holding this big placard and and on the placard of so of course it says you know the end is near and 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 this guy is right in the face of of an onlooker and the onlooker just without batting an eye i can just kind of in this in my mind's eye see this kind of taking place just can you be a little bit more specific about that and i just have, uh, i've always <laughs> loved it I, i've loved that i've loved that comment so yeah. so i wonder yeah. you know as a as a bible scholar of course and and this book is fantastic can you be a little bit more specific about what that's about? <laughs> is the end? Are we are we approaching this? What is what does the literature say? What what are what are you saying? What's what are the conclusions here? We'll start with that. You know, um, there have been a lot of incidents over the years, of course, that uh, where people were specific. <laughs> yeah. Most people are reluctant now <laughs> because, like, every single time somebody's been specific, they've been you know incontrovertibly shown to be wrong. And then typically what they do is they reset the date. Oh yeah. I miscalculated. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So, you know, I actually start the book with this issue because mm -hmm, I, when mm -hmm. I moved to Chapel Hill in 1988, there was a, a book out uh, by this, this fellow named Edgar Weissenet, who was a, um, it started out as a, rocket engineer for nasa so he wasn't a dumb guy yeah <laughs> but, but he but he had the book was called 88 reasons why the rapture will occur in 1988 and you know he had 88 reasons from the bible yeah. and other philosophical reasons and he had all these things worked out and they're very precise that he 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 knew that the end was going to come on between September 21st and 23rd of 1988, because that was the festival of Rosh Hashanah. And he had worked out that that was going to be the year. And um, even some of the fundamentalist uh, people who were reading his work and said, you know, Jesus does say that no one knows the day or the hour. And Weissner replied, no, that's absolutely right. I don't know the day or the hour. I just know the week. <laughs> yeah, we'll so, narrow it down there. <laughs> yeah, so the deal is, you know, the Bible. Um, the Bi One of the things that prompted my book is that when I was also a conservative evangelical, we all believed that uh, the Bible was was predicting uh, that it was it was going to come. We didn't have a specific day, but we were pretty sure it was going to come before the end of the 1980s. This is when in the early 70s when I was a, a fundamentalist and. Um, my, my book, this book uh, on Armageddon started out being simply a book trying to show that this idea that revelation is predicting our future is, is wrong. Um, the, the reason people, um, 
wrongly say, you know, it'll be by the end of the 1980s or, you know, World War, uh, World War II, it's going to be, you know, in the middle of the 1940s and World War One is going to be, and yeah, you know, like every time there's something bad going on, it, the revelation is being is printing. It's going to happen now. Yeah. And what I argue in my book is that the reason everybody's wrong is not because they get this detail or that detail wrong or they misinterpret that passage or that the reason is because that's the wrong way to interpret the book of revelation it's not predicting our future and i try to show that uh in my book what it's really about because it's not what's going to happen in the 21st century so many are focused on this term the rapture and what that means and and the clock keeps ticking of course and you you in addition to researching Wisenant you you reference Hal Lindsey who's written on this subject and Tim LaHaye very famously and a big big bestsellers around this subject mm-hmm. so what what's the rapture according to them so the rapture is the idea that's widespread in uh, evangelical but especially fundamentalist circles that Jesus is going to be returning soon to take his followers out of the world before the great tribulation hits. The tribulation is a seven-year set of catastrophes where the Antichrist rises up and takes over the world government, and and basically at the end all hell breaks out until uh, um, God intervenes and destroys all all the evil in the world. But the Christians don't have to be around for that. They, uh, Jesus will snatch them up. The, the term rapture comes from a Latin word, which means to snatch. And so the followers of Jesus will be snatched out of the world so they don't have to have to uh, experience the, uh, the apocalypse. And, and so, you know, what, one of the things I point out in the book is that to the surprise of many people, <laughs> the rapture is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. The word doesn't occur. The concept doesn't occur. And in fact, I argue, I, I try to show that it's nowhere in the Bible at all. Uh, and then I then I show where it actually came from, because it was only invented in the 1830s. Before that, nobody had the idea of the rapture. We just seem to be so caught up in this, this event, this rapture. It, and maybe that's what sells books, because the book of Revelation certainly doesn't mention it. So others have taken it upon themselves to kind of do that. Uh, yeah. Why are some yeah. of these predictions so sensational in your opinion? I, I can imagine that it does sell books. I mean, there's got to be other reasons though, too. Well, it certainly sells books. I mean, mm-hmm. Hal Lindsey uh, was the, the the late great planet Earth. That was the book that when I was an evangelical, we all uh, we all considered to be the uh, 28th book of the New Testament. <laughs> it was like, it was the one that explained everything. And he predicted that the end would come by the end of the of the 1980s. Um, his, he sold millions of copies of that book. And when uh, it didn't happen, he wrote another book <laughs> and then another. He's still going. He's on the radio still saying the signs are now being fulfilled. <laughs> and so I think, you know, I don't think people are doing that uh, because they want to make money, even though uh, some probably are, but, but I don't think most of them are doing it to make money. They're doing it because they really believe it. Somebody has told them that the Bible predicts when the end's going to come. They probably grew up with that in Sunday school or, or something. And, and so they figured it out now. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. You would think that somebody who's been saying that it's going to happen any day now and 50 years later, 
you would think that they would just say, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe not. The the only person I know who's actually finally said, yeah, I was wrong was uh, Harold Camping. I don't know if you remember him or your listeners do, but Mm. Harold Camping was a, um, uh, just a few years ago, he was all over the news because he had his his uh, ministry put up a hundred million dollars to put billboards on the streets mm-hmm. about when about the end, you know, and he had a specific date. And he had done that for about fifteen years. He'd been picking specific dates, and finally, he just said, "Oh, guys, I'm wrong, and I, you know, I've sinned. I shouldn't have been doing that. I'm, I thought I was right, but I obviously was wrong." and and then he died two years later as, as, as an old man. But I mean, it's just like, you know, he spent his whole life thinking that he had, he could do it. He could show. And it just, he's wrong. And it's, it's just not, it you know, obviously it wasn't good for him. It's not for the good for the people who really think it's going to come, you know, on March 29th and then, and it doesn't happen. It's just hugely disappointing. Hi, it's Paul. As I mentioned, today's show is brought to you by Better Help. Let's talk quickly about our sponsor, BetterHelp. I will be 66 next month. I've mentioned this a lot on the show. I'm proud of that. I've also mentioned that whenever I bring this up, I'm struck by the fact that despite there being a remarkable number of things to complain about in old age, I've noticed a significant lightening of my mood and that I am just happier. It's a lifelong process of learning, but I'm less aloof. I'm more open to people. and. I'm more open to change. I don't feel dismissive of others, particularly their feelings, and I'm not mistrustful. This self-awareness has come as a result of my journey, therapy, and friends. That combination is key, I believe. The element of therapy has deepened my understanding of the need for change and growth. It's made me happier. Not jumping up and down on the couch happier, just more content. But the therapy piece has given me perspective as I have talked through things. Because sometimes we don't even know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. I've truly benefited from therapy, but I'm happy to tell you that therapy has brought strength, perspective, and self-discovery. And that's led me being to the best version of myself now at almost 66. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. Telehealth is a godsend. And the convenience of BetterHelp, their range of therapists, the flexibility, the affordability, it is the option for me. And it could work for you too. You start by filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. But You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered, less stressful, more self-discovered way, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash N-O-B today to get 10% off of your first month. That's a month of therapy for 10% off. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash N-O-B. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash N-O-B and get on your way to being your best, most self-discovered self. Thanks, everybody. I will be right back with our guest, Dr. Bart Ehrman. You know, I mentioned that today's show is brought to you by Sunday. 
as in GetSunday.com. Let's talk quickly about our sponsor, Sunday. You know, we do talk about this subject a lot on the show. You all know how much I enjoy being outside, especially since it's starting to get warm and the spring weather is absolutely our favorite. It's great to have the sun on my face and the sun on the flowers, the lawn, everything just perks right up. Speaking of lawn, this time of year is crucial to lawn care and prep. You may love spring like me, but you may not love the prep and upkeep for a beautiful lawn. What makes the spring season even better is Sunday lawn care. Where to start though? Well, That's where Sunday comes in. Sunday is everything you need to get the lawn you've dreamed up. No trips to the store or hauling heavy bags since they ship straight to your home. You just need a hose to apply Sunday. What could be easier? You can fertilize your whole lawn in less time than it takes to watch an episode of your favorite TV show. And they only use ingredients you can feel good about. No harsh chemicals, no long waiting periods, or trying to keep your pets off the lawn. Simply apply, let it dry, and you're back to enjoying your yard. As a matter of fact, this spring, you can go to getsunday.com slash NOB and enter your address to get a customized plan created just for your lawn. It's amazing. I've done that, and it is fantastic. Sunday is easy and affordable. Some lawn care services cost more than $1,500 a year, but Sunday's full-season plans start at just $109. And Sunday is offering the Not Old Better Show listeners 20% off. So full seasons. So full season plans start at just 109 bucks. You can get 20% off of that when you visit getsunday.com slash NOB at checkout. That's 20% off your custom plan at getsunday.com slash NOB. All of this will be in our show notes. But thanks, everybody. We are with New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman has uh, joined us previously as a returning guest and is so popular with our audience. Dr. Ehrman, I sure appreciate your time. This book is, again, wonderful. We will put links up to it so that our audience can find it and learn more about Dr. Ehrman in this great book entitled Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End. So let's let's talk about that in, in relation to, to the book, about what the Bible really says, how how should the book of Revelation be analyzed? How should we think about it? And because so many get it so wrong, what what are you telling us here in the in the book about some of this that we need to kind of get right? Yeah. So, you know, Revelation is probably um, the least read and the most misunderstood book of the Bible, I think. Uh, most people, um, most people don't read it because it just seems too weird and bizarre and they can't get their head around it. The people who do read it uh, tend to be the people who who have been told that it's predicting what's going to happen in our future, uh, and and so they they'll find passages that sure sound like the headline news, and they'll say, "See, it's been predicted," and that's that's how it's always been. That's how it's always been read by that kind of that kind of person. Historical scholars uh, don't read it that way, and uh, haven't never have read it that way. I uh, when I 
when I left the uh, fundamentalist fold and started learning more about biblical scholarship, I, I realized a different way of reading it, which was that this is it's not a little literal description of what's coming soon, that it's a metaphorical description about how God will triumph over evil in the end, and that it was to be a, a message of hope. Um, so I, I had that reading for many, many years. Even after I left Christianity, I left the church, and I still taught my undergraduate classes that this is meant to be a book of hope, uh, uh, where, where God will destroy everything that is evil, and he'll reward his faithful followers. And to some extent, it is that. It, it is that. But when you read Revelation closely, um, as I try to explain uh, in this book, it's really not a book of hope. Um, the word hope never occurs in the book of Revelation. Um, the love of God is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. Revelation really is about how uh, God gets revenge, and he pours out his vengeance on the earth. And so instead of words like love and mercy and forgiveness and hope— the, if you just look up the words in Revelation, the main words are things like wrath and violence uh, and vengeance, revenge, blood. Uh, those are the words that get used all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really about how God's judgment is going to hit the earth, and virtually everybody, except for not e virtually everybody, is going to be destroyed, and not even all Christians will survive. A lot of Christians are going to be destroyed with everyone else. If they don't believe, uh, they don't hold to the faith exactly like John John of Patmos does. Um, I think it's a very violent book, and uh, one of the questions I ask in my in my treatment of it is whether its portrayal of uh, the Christian message is compatible with the preaching of Jesus Himself, because I have, I have serious doubts about that. Yeah, and, and I want to get I want to touch on that too, and so. You use the word wrath and you use the word blood, and there's a great deal of symbolism in Revelation. Maybe tell us a little yeah. bit about that bizarre symbolism that occurs there in, in the book of Revelation. Well, the symbolism is what uh, I think frightens people. Mm -hmm. um, this, is a, um, this is a kind of book that, uh, that scholars who are familiar with ancient literature recognize. There are other books like this in ancient Judaism and Christianity. And so it was a genre of literature, just like, uh, you know, a short story is a genre or a science fiction novel is a genre or a limerick poem is a genre. There, there are ways of doing literature where you know what you're doing as an author and the, the reader knows what you're doing and, and the reader has expectations from the way you're doing things. Mm. Um, and that's what the apocalypse is. These books are always, uh, they're visions that a prophet has that, that he narrates in the first person. They're wildly symbolic uh, and mysterious, and they're meant to be. But usually in these apocalypses, uh, usually the prophet doesn't understand what he's seeing either. <laughs> he yeah. sees something crazy, some wild beast with <laughs> seven heads and ten horns and yeah. <laughs> coming up out of the sea. He's, oh, my God, what is that? But there's almost always an angel standing by to tell him. <laughs> <laughs> and so the key to these books is to see what hints the author gives, what kind of clues the author gives for how to unpack the uh, the image. And that happens in Revelation all over the place. And historical scholars have known that. And what they've shown is that the great enemy of God, 
um, people often call this a great enemy of God, the Antichrist, which is which you know is the common name, but it's not that word's not found in the book of Revelation, Antichrist. But there, the Antichrist figure is called the beast from the sea, and uh, uh, the beast does have seven horns and uh, seven heads and ten horns. And at one point, there's this grotesque woman, the whore of Babylon, sitting on this beast, and the angel, the angel's explaining explaining to John what this beast is. And the angel and the, the woman is called Babylon. She's got Babylon written on her head mm. and Babylon, the whore. And, um, and the angel explains that this woman is the great city that is ruling and dominating the earth. So this is written during the Roman empire, obviously, and who's dominating the earth of the Roman empire. Well, Rome is, and, and the angel says the seven heads are the seven hills that the woman is seated on. Hmm. Well, anybody in the ancient world knows that Rome was the city built on seven hills. Uh, so if you start seeing that kind of clue, then you realize, oh, the whore of Babylon, she's called Babylon because in the Old Testament, Babylon, the nation, the, the city of Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. And in the year 70 CE, Rome destroyed Jerusalem and burnt the temple. So Rome is the new Babylon sitting on seven hills, et cetera, et cetera. You start getting these kind of clues. And once you get enough of them, you can figure the book out. And it's, it's historical scholars. There are debates about this detail, that to lots of debates about this and that detail, but the overall picture is pretty easy to figure out as, as historical scholars have long recognized. And it's not talking about nuclear fallout. After you know the after you know the Soviet Union invades Israel <laughs> or whatever whatever scenario you want to come up with. <laughs> well, you've used the word seven a couple a couple times here in in our conversation, and the number seven appears in the Book of Revelation in a, in a lot of different ways: seven hills, the seven horns, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. Do, do we need to make a big deal of the number seven? Is that part of some of this symbolism? And where does that fit? Yeah, seven is a, it's one of those numbers in the Bible that usually is significant. Um, and it was significant in wider culture back then. Um, this um, There was a, a Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, Egypt, named Philo, who wrote an entire treatise explaining the importance of seven, <laughs> the number seven, because, you know, you also have seven days in the week and you've mm -hmm. got seven planets and you've got seven levels of heaven and you've got seven uh, stages of human life. And the people had, you know, seven was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And um, in the Bible, it usually means the perfect number. Um, and, uh, but perfect doesn't mean necessarily good. Um, it seven could be perfectly evil as well, like the seven heads mm -hmm. uh, on the beast, which are also said to represent not just the hills, but also to represent seven kings. And so this is referring to seven rulers of Rome. These images are never, you know, they're never literal. It's this, 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 and only this is, they, they tend to be overlapping images and, you know, complicated images, but seven's very important. And so the, the catastrophes that hit the earth occur in a series of three sets of seven. So three is also an important number in the Bible and in Christian thinking. I mean, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for example. Mm -hmm. And so you've got three sets of seven. And part of this is um, part of, you know, you can't take the numbers as um, 
as trying to say something specific about, you know, there actually have to be seven. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, it's more that this is showing the kind of completeness of the destruction that's coming. Three sets of seven. As as I was reading through your book, too, I, I noticed that it, you make it pretty clear that uh, it, it seems like I, I kind of I counted. I think there are 27 books in the New Testament, but that revelation is doesn't really fit. You know, one of these things isn't like the other kept kept jumping to, to my mind. Why is it there in the first place? What what do you think the the reasoning is to have something like revelation in that new testament yeah. what are you thinking that it uh, means yeah 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 well i i guess um the first thing to say is that it was not there in the first place mm. <laughs> it got added uh, the new testament itself was wasn't um you know it didn't come together a few years after Jesus' life, the, these books were written over the course of some decades after Jesus, and and people had to decide which books that claim to be written by authorities, which ones are authoritative. There were lots of other gospels, for example, and so they had to choose well which gospels are authoritative, or which letters are authoritative, and and which apocalypses are authoritative. There were debates about the Apocalypse of John, uh, the Book of Revelation. Uh, the debates actually in antiquity were not the kinds of debates we we would expect today. I think a lot of people today think Revelation just doesn't belong in there. It's so violent and gory, and is God really like that? You know, hope. that's our concern. Yeah, yeah. But in the ancient world, that wasn't the concern. <laughs> the ancient world, the debates about Revelation were that Revelation is predicting that at the end there'll be this millennium where there'll be this glorious existence where the saints will be feasting and banqueting and having this fantastic time. And the ancient, the church fathers, like in the third and fourth centuries, were, were starting to move toward the idea that you should not indulge your physical pleasure. <laughs> if you're going to live for God, you should lead an ascetic life and, and not be tied to your body and the bodily pleasures. And this book of Revelation, oh my God, it's like a little bit, you know, too co cozy up there in the millennium. And so they—that's—that was one of the reasons they didn't want to admit it. Some uh, many many church fathers, and they also um, they also there there were reasons for thinking that it was not written by one of the apostles. Hmm. The author claims to be John, who's living on the island of Patmos. Um, there was a John, of course, who was a disciple of Jesus, John, the son of Zebedee, but this author doesn't claim to be that John. And in a couple of places, he seems to refer to the 12 apostles and he's not referring to himself. And so, and in early Christianity, there were, there was a church father in the year 260. His name was Dionysius. He was a mm -hmm. bishop of the, of the uh, city of Alexandria. And he wrote a treatise that that in which he tried to show that whoever wrote this book did not write the Gospel of John. Hmm. And he did it on uh, linguistic grounds. He did a language analysis that scholars would still agree with today. This is not written by the same person. <laughs> <laughs> and so they didn't accept it for those reasons. Eventually, the reason it got in, again, would be a reason you wouldn't expect. Some people thought it belonged. Some people thought it did not belong. In the fourth century, there were a lot of debates, especially about how to understand the relationship of Christ and God the Father. Um, is Christ 
is everybody thought he was God in some sense, but is he like a second level divinity uh, subordinate to God, the father I and mean, God's the father and he's the son, he's subordinate. Right. But there were, there were debates about this and the council of Nicaea in three twenty five mm-hmm. met in order to resolve this debate. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the choices that the, the son was subordinate to God. The other choice was they're completely equal. They're of the same substance. They are, they are, it's not that they're identical, but they're equal in power and will and everything else. That side won the debate. Mm. Um, and that was the decision of the Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. But the Book of Revelation weirdly figured in the could figure in the debate because in the Book of Revelation, God on a couple of occasions says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet. And so God is, you know, he's before all things, after all things, he's the beginning and the end. But at one point, Jesus also says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Hmm. And so these theologians said, they're claiming the same thing. They are equal. And so Revelation was great for these theologians who previously were kind of suspicious of it. Hmm. And that's one of the reasons then finally everybody agreed. Okay, well, so maybe John did write it, John the son of Zebedee, and we'll include it. Um, even as it was included, though, it it was the least copied book of its size in the entire New Testament over the mm. centuries. Mm. It just didn't have the kind of popularity that the Gospels or Paul, et cetera, had. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Bart Ehrman, um, again, the title of the book is Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End. It's wonderful. We're going to put links up. The book is, uh, at least my copy of it, Dr. Ehrman, says that it is going to be released on March 21st. So it's either for sale now or it will be very quickly. And you can find it lots of places. We're going to put links so that you can find this excellent book. I really enjoyed it. Revelation is there. It's in the New Testament. And even though many don't read it, how do you re- maybe close us with this just this final question, Dr. Ehrman, that is, how do you recommend we do read it? Uh, revelation it it's there we should you know we shouldn't just skip it perhaps maybe we need to pay attention to some of its messages yeah. what what do you suggest we do um what i what i suggest is uh, well first of all recognize it is not predicting our future mm-hmm. uh, and i you know i try to show why that is and so that's the first thing is to get get away from that reading because it it only leads to problems and it's not it's not it's not the right, right reading if i uh if i want to put a positive spin on it if i were a christian believer and this was in my canon of scripture uh what i would say is that the ultimate message of this book is one that i affirm that evil does not have the last word um mm-hmm. god has the last word mm-hmm. And that those who are experiencing evil now can have hope that in the end, it will all be made right. Uh, and so that basic message is one that we all hope for. And if, if, I, if I were a believer, that's what I would hold on to in the book. I think the difficulty of the book is that the way it gets there is contrary to the way Jesus gets there. Um and I have a fairly lengthy discussion in the book to try and show that even though Jesus also believed that God would triumph in the end, he did not exult in the torment and the torture and the horrible suffering that people would go through. And Jesus, 
Jesus didn't think that it was going to be for a little slice of people who had the correct beliefs, the way John of Patmos does. Jesus is quite clear in uh, the Gospels, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, or the, the story of the sheep and the goats, that those who are brought into God's kingdom, those whom God is pleased with, will be those who help those in need. Um, that even people who've never even heard of Jesus before, if they're good, decent people who are trying to help those who are hungry and homeless and uh, wrongly imprisoned and, and people who are helping the oppressed, those are the people God is pleased with. And I think that's a, uh, I think that's a better way to look at it. It's certainly the way Jesus looked at it. And even, and so, and I don't think the author of Revelation looks at it that way. Hmm. He thinks that you've got to have exactly the right belief that's just like his, or, you know, or it's the lake of fire for you. Hmm. So, um, so I don't like the way he gets there, but where he gets uh, can be a source of hope for people who are having a hard time now and are suffering now that ultimately God gets the last word. Hmm. So well said, uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman. Congratulations on on the book. Congratulations on this wonderful study and research and your scholarly effort and for sharing this with us. I, I'm a believer and I walk away from all of our conversations with a great deal of hope. And I think we do need that at this point in time. So I appreciate your insight so much and helping us get there. So thanks, Dr. Ehrman. My best to you. And again, we'll get everybody on board and read this and start talking about it because I do think it's important stuff. Thank you, Dr. Ehrman. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I do as well. My thanks to BetterHelp and Sunday for sponsoring today's show. My thanks to returning biblical scholar and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Bart Ehrman. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. And of course, my thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.